Gracious God, we thank you that you are a speaking God, and we ask this morning that you would make us a listening people. Open our eyes that we might meet Jesus and be those who surrender our lives to his loving rule, and we ask it for his namesake. Amen. Incorporated in California in 1972 by the founders Fred and Linda Chamberlain, Alcor is the world's leading provider of cryonics. With 50 preserved patients and a total of 1,412 members on their lists, they seek to provide an extension to life and a stabilization of the dying process using sub-freezing temperatures with the aim of restoring life to good health with medical technology in the future. Their website explains that the definition of death can change over time as medical understanding and technology improve. So somebody who would have been declared dead decades ago may still have a chance today. Death, they say, used to be when a person's heart stopped beating, when their heart couldn't be restarted. But now it can be extended further. At around $140,000, it's a pretty good deal. Uh, And if the full package is beyond your uh, budget, there's a half-price option, which involves the freezing just of your head on the assumption that it will be glued on to some other body in the future. The medical team will be at your bedside to begin the process at legal death. Within hours, you'll be packed with ice as giant syringes pump liquid oxygen and nitrogen to prevent deterioration. Then you'll be taken to their facility, cooled down to minus 320 degrees Fahrenheit in the hope that whatever you died of, one day we can open your personalized freezer and bring you back to a new resurrected life. A sister company puts it like this, a century ago if you died, they buried you. As recently as the 1950s, if your heart stopped, you'd be cremated. These days, it's more likely that you'll be resuscitated and sent back to work and pay your taxes. Science is constantly pushing the boundaries of what it is to be dead. The intention in cryonics is to provide a sort of ambulance into the future. Chances are reasonable that the technology required for repair will be available, cryonics, aims to get you there. It's easy to mock it, but it's hard to begrudge anyone who wants to sidestep death. Death is the most disturbing unknown, the final frontier, the ultimate terror. Every day around the world, three people will die every second. 180 every minute, 11,000 every hour, 260,000 every day. Death is the great inevitable, the grave, the ultimate humiliation. 
So much so that in the Middle Ages, rich and famous and prominent people were presented with a skull. They kept it on their desk as a memento mori, a reminder of their mortality. Because whoever you are, death will one day meet you. It will end all relationships, extinguish all achievements, shatter all dreams. Your final appointment will be your funeral. And the whole of life is really just one long crematorium queue. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So how do you feel about your death? What if there was a way through the grave? What if there was a way through the dark, terrifying tunnel of death, an answer beyond the tomb? What if there was somebody who loved us and who would be there for us at this, the moment of utter terror? And if that person had the power to escort us through the tunnel and safe to the other side into a perfect new world. Because this morning, what Luke has for us is precisely that, a risen Jesus, a king of love and a savior of power. Because the great good news of Easter Sunday is that he is alive with love and power to save you. Our problem is that we are a cynical generation. We're suspicious of fake news and spin. Ours is a scientific, rationalistic world, so we need proof, because dead men don't rise. In a criminal case in the United States, the prosecution has the burden, as it's called, of proving the case beyond all reasonable doubts. And that means that the prosecution must convince the jury so that they are satisfied so as to be sure. Well, this morning, Luke is going to do that for us. Because the resurrection of Jesus doesn't belong in children's fiction, but in the history section. And Luke is a careful historian as he meticulously and determinedly sets out the facts to persuade the jury here this morning that Jesus is risen from the grave. Page 69 of our church Bibles, Luke 24, and two questions for the jury this morning. Here's the first. Have you examined the evidence? Because the account of Jesus' resurrection is based on a series of undeniable facts. And the first is this. They came for a corpse, verse 1. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices that they had prepared. It's early dawn, around 5 a.m. The women go to the grave, and as they're heading to the tomb, they have the spices that they have prepared. On the Friday, the body was handed over by the coroner, chapter 23, verse 53, as Joseph of Arimathea acts as the undertaker. The body is put in the mortuary, the tomb, and in line with Jewish burial laws, there could be no burial on the Sabbath. So the preparation of the body has to wait until the first day of the week, Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, our time. But the point about this is that the coroner has declared Jesus clinically dead. 
which answers the objection of some, which is that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, he just swooned. And then, in the cool of the tomb, was brought back to life. It doesn't make sense because the Romans were expert executioners, determined to kill. Place of death, Calvary. Time of death, 3 p.m. Place of death, Golgotha. Manner of death, state execution. They came for a corpse. The second piece of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus comes in verse 2. For the tomb had been vacated. They found the tomb stone rolled away. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They arrive and the boulder has been strangely removed. Imagine their trepidation and their terror as they lean in and peer in. And then in their astonishment, the body has gone. It gives rise to a whole range of explanations. Maybe the women have gone to the wrong tomb. But it makes no sense. The death of Jesus was a cause celebre. The media had been following the story. And in chapter 23, verse 55, Luke specifically records that the women followed Joseph and the undertakers and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Well, the other theory goes like this. Um, The tomb raiders came and the corpse was taken, a kind of invasion of the body snatchers. But body snatching was common in the 19th century for a clear purpose. They needed corpses for dissection in anatomy for the lectures in medical schools. But there is no Gunther von Hagen's offering to dissect bodies in a bodyworks display on television in front of millions. And anyway, they happened to have stumbled across the one guarded tomb. And anyway, why leave the body and actually take the linen. That's what they should have done, but in fact they leave the linen, and the body has gone. The linen was the expensive stuff. It doesn't make sense. So, did the authorities steal the body? But Christianity started in Jerusalem. It spread like wildfire. As the disciples preached that Jesus was risen, if the authorities had the body, The Jerusalem equivalent of the FBI could have produced the body and said this whole Christian message, the whole message of Jesus is fake news. We can fact check it. Here's the body. So did the disciples steal the body? That's the official explanation of the Jewish establishment today. And in the second century, a writer called Justin Martyr records this. His disciples stole him by night from the tomb where he was laid. They unfastened him from the cross. And now they deceive men by asserting that he has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. But it's bizarre. It's delusional. First of all, how did they get past the FBI police security cordon? Then, how did they move the enormous seal, the stone, from the entrance? And why, if they had stolen the body, did they risk their lives returning to the tomb? And if they really had stolen the body and stashed it 
in the trunk of the BMW or whatever it was, knowing that the whole thing was a fabrication, do you really think these men would have faced the full force and wrath of the Imperial Republic, risking arrest under counter-terrorism charges and state execution for a lie? Wouldn't one of them crack? But none of them did. Which takes us to the next piece of evidence for the jury and the divine explanation. These two eyewitnesses, for as these women peer into the tomb, they see through the early morning darkness something momentous, verse 4. They were perplexed. Behold, then suddenly two men appeared and stood near them in dazzling clothing, verse 5. And as the women were terrified and they bowed their heads, the men in dazzling clothes were inside the tomb. It's an overwhelming sight. They fall down with terror to the grounds because these two men are not random passerby, but angelic messengers, ambassadors from heaven with a divine explanation. These women are being confronted by heaven Two, because in a Jewish court of law, any evidence has to be established by two witnesses. But their testimony comes in the form of a penetrating question, followed by a staggering assertion, both of which take us to the heart of real Christianity. The penetrating question, why do you seek the living one among the dead? And the staggering assertion, verse 6, he is not here. He is risen. He's not here. Yes, we know that bit, but where is he? Stolen by the authorities, snatched by the tomb raiders, taken by the disciple, or are we at the wrong tomb? But no amount of intellectual gymnastics will get you there. The staggering assertion is this. He is risen. But the skeptic protests Sorry, corpses don't come back to life. And in verse 11, as the women go back now to the apostles to tell the story, they are on our side, and they agree, and they laugh. These words appeared to them, the apostles, as nonsense. The Greek word is leros, literally delirious. You, you women are crazy. You're out of your minds. You're spouting rubbish. And they wouldn't believe so Peter acts as the skeptic general as he now runs to the tomb for himself. He gets to the crime scene. It's been a roller coaster week. The triumphal entry, the betrayal of Judas, the arrest in the garden, the state trial, Jesus flogged and then executed at the cross. His emotion is everywhere. His heart is pounding. As he looks in, stooping and looking, he saw the linen wrappings only, the discarded bandages and the absent body. And he went home, marveling at what he had seen because there is no word for it. He's speechless, astonished, bewildered and stunned and staggered and shocked and confounded and dismayed. And there's one last piece of evidence for the jury because this, this risen Jesus is seen 
Have a look down to verse 13. As two men, Cleopas and a friend, they recognize Jesus on their road to Emmaus. And then in verse 36, as we switch scene now to Jerusalem, as he comes to the 11, he, he stands among them, his crucified hands and feet. And then in verse 50, he's with the apostles. For over a period of six weeks, the risen Jesus appears to his followers on at least 10 occasions. On one occasion to 500 people together. And all the way through, there is compelling evidence. See, see, touch me and see. Because so many people look down on Christians as irrational, like the queen from Alice in Wonderland, who absurdly declares that she tries to believe at least six impossible things every morning before breakfast. But Christianity is not blind faith. It's not irrational faith. It's forensic faith. It's evidential faith. The faith of an investigator, a scientist, a historian, or a lawyer. Were the press pack to be on the scene from CNN, or the Wall Street Journal, or Fox News, had they followed the story, there would have been multiple appearances to different people in different locations over a period of weeks, some to crowds, other times to individuals. Even Thomas, the skeptic, is converted. Sir Norman Anderson was a professor of law at Harvard University and a high court judge in England. He would have sat in many trials weighing the evidence and instructing a jury. He wrote a book some years ago called The Evidence for the Resurrection. And as a convinced Christian and careful lawyer and judge, he writes this. The empty tomb then forms a veritable rock on which all other rationalistic theories of the resurrection dash themselves in vain. Have you examined the evidence? But there's a second question for the jury. Have you received the rescue? On June the 18th, 1815, Wellington faced Napoleon for the Battle of Waterloo. It was a terrifying moment for England. And the whole of England waited for news as what would happen to the realm. Would we be under the control of the French or free forever? Uh, Lookout stations were arranged uh, across the south coast of England, across the English Channel waiting for the signal ships to send the signal of news from the battlefield. It was a very foggy day, but eventually the signal came through, a signal of defeat and despair. Wellington defeated, read the message. England defeated. But it was a foggy day. And the full message wasn't seen. It was midday when the fog eventually lifted. And the full message in all of its glory could be seen. Wellington defeated Napoleon. On that first Good Friday, had you stood there, the message would have been Jesus defeated. 
But as the fog lifts on that first Saturday and into that first Easter Sunday, the full glory of Christianity is clear. Jesus defeated death. Verse seven, remember what he told you when he was in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day, rise again. For the death of Jesus on that first Good Friday was always part of God's eternal rescue plan. The resurrection of Jesus, part of his victory parade over the watching universe. And his resurrection, verse seven, proves that he is the Son of Man. His favorite title, borrowed straight from the book of Daniel. A human figure, yet in the book of Daniel, clothed with eternal glory. A man, yes, but on a par with God. A human king, given authority over all people in all places for all time, who approaches God's and who's given control of the universe. And it makes sense of his claims. On one occasion he said, if anyone has seen me, they've seen the Father. On another he said, I and the Father are one. But the resurrection means something else. Because in the Old Testament, resurrection meant only one thing, judgment. You were raised in the Old Testament for final judgment. So if this this man has been raised, he stands as the first man of a new human race, the first man through death to be raised, and the guarantor that one day we will all be raised for judgments. The resurrection of Jesus is is a warning siren a flashing red light on the dashboard of history that warns us that one day soon we will all be raised for judgment. Over the last two or three years, we've been involved in social distancing. It's been exhausting and agonizing, hasn't it? But actually, we are all engaged in a form of social distancing against God. What we all do is we say to God, the God who made us, we want the good things from your world, but not you. We want to take the good things that you give us, but we don't want your control over us. So we push God out into the wings. We say to God, get lost. I don't want you in control of my life. We slap God in the face. We slam the door against God when he comes knocking, and it hurts God, it grieves God, and it makes him rightly angry, because he is a God to whom moral categories matter, and at the resurrection of Jesus, we now see that one day we will be raised to answer God and face his judgment on the other side of death for our rebellion and sin against him, for this Jesus is judge. And the moment you die, you will see him in glory. And he will be the decider of where we spend eternity, in the glory of the paradise of his kingdom, or in the eternal anger and terror of hell, which we all deserve. Which is why we need Good Friday. No Easter would be complete without Handel's sacred Otario, the Messiah. We're gonna hear some 
in just a few minutes. But part two opens with Christ's passion. And at very solemn moments, as he puts to music Isaiah 53, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And what Handel does with the music is extraordinary and amazing as he takes this sobering truth about the guilt of our sin and he puts it to music really quickly in almost a a giddy way. It's gleeful and chaotic. We're like whirring dervishes, for we, like sheep, have gone astray, turned each one to his own way. And it's as if Handel understands the cross because at the moment as we see what Jesus has done, the music slows as suddenly the solemnity and seriousness and awe of what Jesus has done dawns on us. We, like sheep, have gone astray, turned each one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on him, the iniquity of us all. It was explained to me as an unbeliever like this. Picture you with the weight of your sin and the perfect Jesus. And on that first Good Friday, all of your guilt, Tony, transferred to Christ and the full anger of God falling on him so that you might go free. Buddha died at the age of 80 in perfect serenity. Mohammed died at the age of 62 with his harem in Mecca. Jesus of Nazareth dies at the age of 33 in God-forsakenness, nakedness, and shame, facing the brutality of the cross, but worse, your guilt, but worse, the wrath of God for your sin. That's how much he loves you. And if only we'll turn to him, we'll find his power and grace and forgiveness, and life. For centuries, Europeans believed there was no land beyond Portugal. And a large plaque hung at the port in Lisbon. It read, Nuplus Ultra. No more beyond this. The same words on the left-hand side of the map. But in 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue and thankfully for you and me, discovered a land called America. There was a land of wealth and opportunity beyond and it marked the dawn of a new age. So much so that the king of Spain and Portugal demanded that a new sign was put up at the port in Lisbon, plus ultra, more beyond. For Jesus, God's king, has gone through the pain barrier of death. There is more beyond, a perfect, physical, new paradise creation. More beyond and for everyone who turns to Christ and trusts in him, that future is yours as you take off the crown and submit to the kingship of Christ. No, cryonics and alcohol can't help, but Jesus, this savior of love and king of power is waiting to take you 
through your death into a perfect new world. In just a moment, the choir are about to come to the front, but as they do that, let's pray together, and then we'll stand with them to sing the Hallelujah Chorus taken from Handel's Messiah. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the great good news of Jesus' saving death and mighty resurrection. We praise you that he is a savior of love and a king of power. Help us today, each one of us, to place our eternal destinies into his hands, that he might be the one who walks with us through life, through death, and into your eternal kingdom. And we ask it for his namesake. Amen.